You're now listening to episode 126 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli joined here today with Brian Chow, partner at Barth Calderon LLP, a California-based law firm where he focuses on asset protection, estate planning, and business succession planning. In today's episode, we discuss entity structuring for California-based real estate investors, including the truth about the $800 minimum franchise tax on California-based LLCs, the potential risks of using a Delaware Statutory Trust, or DST, as an alternative to an LLC structure, viable alternatives, and much more. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background? Sure. First of all, uh, Brandon Thomas, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, my name is Brian Chow. I am a California State Bar Certified Specialist in Estate Planning, Trust, and Probate Law. So I'm an attorney who deals with estate planning and asset protection planning. So what I help my clients to do is, as they accumulate wealth, to help them to structure their assets to make it more difficult for people to sue them and take those assets away from them and ultimately to help them to plan for how they pass those assets on to their loved ones in a way that minimizes their taxes and their headaches, while also maximizing whatever legacy goals it is that they have. Awesome. Awesome. So before we just dive right in here, do you have a quick question on what... There's a lot of information out there on different types of you know, assets uh, or LLC structures for asset protection. And typically what we see is um, we'll have a parent LLC that's typically registered in a state like Nevada or Wyoming, or perhaps the investor's state of residency, and then it drops down and you'll have uh, property LLCs, which are typically registered in the state in which the property is owned. And one of the issues we found with California state investors is that $800 franchise tax, which depending on who you ask, requires you as the California resident to register each one of these LLCs in the state of residency or in California rather, just because they sit in California. And just wanted to get your take on that. Is that fact? Uh, you know, how do you navigate those waters? Sure. So that's a great question. So I would say that if the properties are located in California, it's a no-brainer, right? They, they have to be registered in California just because Right. In order for that LLC to do business in that state, right, sign lease agreements, evict tenants, uh, and for that corporate veil to be valid in that state, right, you, you need that California registration to protect you, right, in the event that something goes wrong. Obviously, if the asset is located in California, it's subject to California jurisdiction, right? So, where that issue comes up is where you have residents in, let's oftentimes it comes up in the context of California residents owning property in other states, right? So maybe they bought a property in Missouri, or maybe they bought a property in Ohio or Nashville, Tennessee, right? And they've got, a, let's say it's a Tennessee LLC in uh, holding a property in Nashville. And at that point, then the question becomes, okay, well, if the property is located in Tennessee, the LLC is in Tennessee, the bank accounts are in Tennessee, the tenants are in Tennessee, the rent gets paid in Tennessee, the property manager is in Tennessee, collects the rent, puts it into the account in Tennessee, 
you know, in what state is that LLC doing business, right? So if you think about it logically, you would think that, hey, the all the business is being done in Tennessee, California really isn't touching this operation, and thereby California would not, you know, that uh, LLC would not need to register in California. One might logically think that, however, enter the Franchise Tax Board. And so for those of your residents who either own California property or California residents, they're probably very familiar with the Franchise Tax Board, which is California's version of the IRS. Franchise Tax Board is a very aggressive taxing entity. One might say they may be the most aggressive in the United States and perhaps the world. But the Franchise Tax Board's position is if you are a California resident and you are the manager, right, you're exerting control over a, in a foreign entity, right, an entity that's not located in California, then for tax purposes, the Franchise Tax Board does look at it as if you are now also doing business in California and thereby need to register that LLC in California. Okay, so that's the Franchise Tax Board's position. And so let me put it this way. So there, I've encountered clients or prospective clients that have a difference of opinion with regards to the taxation there, right? Because for, for those reasons, right? All the business is really done, being done in another state. Um, is it appropriate for California to then put itself in a position where this resident needs to then also register in California? And so the analysis is really this, right? So if you're concerned about the potential liability and you can afford to pay the 800 bucks and it's just a drop in the bucket, generally speaking, and I would advise my clients, just pay it and be done with it. You can write it off against your federal income taxes and it is what it is. Now, other clients may say, you know what, either it eats up into my cash flow, that's a problem, or they just say, hey, you know, as a philosophical point, you know, I don't want to pay California anything that I avoid paying in taxes, I want to avoid. And so in those situations, I'll explain to them, okay, you know, if you want to take that risk, right? There is a chance that the Franchise Tax Board could uncover that you are the manager of an LLC in another state. And if that's the case, then they can now come after you for those tax years in which that LLC existed and you didn't pay those taxes plus interest and penalties, right? And so to the extent that you're willing to take that risk, fine. You can choose not to register in California. But like I said, my default is, hey, if you can afford it, go ahead and do it. Now, another part of the analysis kind of falls into what is the likelihood that the Franchise Tax Board would ever become aware of the fact that you are managing a foreign entity? And a lot of that then becomes, uh, then what is the tax structure of that LLC, right? And so as you guys are well aware, and as many of your clients may be aware, that an LLC can be taxed in a number of different ways. It's almost like a stem cell, right? A stem cell can be a bone cell, it can be a blood cell, it can be, it can grow into different types of roles. And so same thing from an, L- an LLC can be taxed in a number of different ways, right? So it can be taxed as a disregarded entity, it can be taxed as a partnership, it can be taxed as an S-corp, it can also be taxed as a C-corp. And so where clients, you know, where the LLC in question is taxed as a disregarded entity, Right, that's just going to get it's a flow through, and it's just going to be reported on the individual's you know 1040, right? Their basic tax return. There's no indication on the tax return on their federal return that they have an LLC in a different state. So the likelihood that the franchise tax board would then ever be aware that they are managing a foreign LLC is pretty low. And so in those cases, I'm more willing to say to the client, look, if you want to take that risk this is probably the situation that will produce the least amount of risk. If it's a partnership return, 
or a corporate, if it's filing a corporate return, then they're going to be kicking off either K-1s, right? Or there's going to be some indication on the uh, individual tax return that there's a, another entity that could potentially then create a trail back and, and create some indication that to the franchise tax board that the resident is uh, operating a foreign entity. And so in those situations, I would say, hey, this is higher risk and you need to be aware of it. And typically in those cases, I would I would try to discourage a client from not registering. And so again, default position is go ahead and register just to be safe. If you want to take the risk, you're better off if you're a disregarded entity than any any of the other uh, tax elections. So that was one of the best explanations that I've heard on this topic cool. uh, ever. <laughs> and I mean that. I mean, that was great. Why, why? Because we, we've been trying to get clarity on this for a long time, right? We, we've got a lot of California clients. We've talked to a lot of attorneys and there's just a lot of wishy-washiness on what do you actually need to register and what do you not? And are you doing business? Are you not doing business? But that was a really succinct and great explanation. Why do some attorneys in California kick it back to the CPA? Because a lot of times what, what happens is our, our clients will be going to some attorney and they go, oh, you got to go ask your CPA about this franchise tax issue? Are they just trying to avoid the liability issues of like advising one way or the other? Because it is wishy-washy or what? You know, uh, so I would say that I think I'm very blessed to be at the firm that I'm at because, you know, a lot of what we do in helping our clients from an asset protection standpoint is it encompasses a lot of different disciplines, right? It encompasses both the knowledge of law, both the knowledge of tax, insurance, bankruptcy, real estate law, right? It kind of it, it kind of goes across a lot of different disciplines. And I mean, the firm that my managing partner has built, it really incorporates a lot of those disciplines into it. And so we have a lot of uh, good resources to lean on to kind of, kind of put all the pieces together. Because a lot of times I think, a challenge that we as advisors have, and I think a lot of times that clients have, is they've got resources who don't necessarily engage or talk to one another, right? And so your accountant might say one thing, the attorney might say another thing, and the insurance guy may say another, the mortgage broker may say another, right? And then and then you kind of have to put that all together. And so one of the things that we've done at our firm is we've tried to kind of encapsulate all of those resources either in-house or have very strong relationships with other uh, service providers like yourselves so that we can all be part of an integrated team to help the client to get done what they need to get done. And so when you have these different disciplines and you're interacting with them on a regular basis, you know, it's easier to pull that in, that big picture into focus. And um, I think the other thing is just uh, there's a lot of really experienced and great uh, attorneys for me to learn from at this firm. So it's a uh, I mean, those are those. I think that that's the answer, really. Absolutely. So, you know, the answer you gave on that, like Brennan said, amazing. And you know, one of the things that has become a very hot topic recently, you know, especially for California investors, is Delaware statutory trusts. Yep. And there's several use cases we've seen them used for. So, before we we go fully down the rabbit hole, would you just be able to give a you know brief overview of what the DST is and, you know, maybe an example of where you've seen a DST uh, be advantageous? Yeah. So Delaware statutory trusts are an interesting thing, right? And so the context in which I've seen Delaware statutory trusts used most traditionally is in facilitating 1031 exchanges, right? So an example here would be client bought a, you know, 20 unit building, 
you know, 40 years ago, been managing it, he's tired, he's getting old, and he wants to divest himself of the headache of managing that property. But he doesn't necessarily want to sell it outright because if he does, he's going to recognize a bunch of capital gain. And so what he might do as an alternative is then say, hey, I want to do a 1031 exchange, but do I want to then buy another property? Am I just jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? And so so oftentimes DSTs are utilized as a way to package uh, other real estate investments like, uh, you know, a let's say a basket of shopping centers across the country. He does a 1031 exchange into this Delaware Statutory Trust. It's got its own built-in management. Right? He, he can then kind of take a hands-off approach and then just pick up the income without recognizing all the capital gain. And so the Delaware Statutory Trusts are utilized in a way to kind of package those investments so that they still qualify as a like-kind exchange from one to the other. Um, what I think you're asking about and what I've heard a lot about from other real estate investors is the utilization of Delaware Statutory Trusts as a uh, stand-in or a replacement for a LLC. And I think the big driving point behind utilizing a Delaware Statutory Trust is, hey, you can create Delaware Statutory Trusts in lieu of the LLC to avoid paying you know, the 800 bucks to the Franchise Tax Board or your registered agent fees, etc., and I'll start by saying that this is a relatively new phenomenon. And I think where I've seen it in practice or where I've seen it most kind of prevalently marketed is to the real estate community, right? And so I see it a lot from my clients that, you know, that regularly attends like, uh, like real estate investment clubs and things like that. And so I don't know if I've really seen it much in the asset protection community as a whole. And our firm in general... You know, our take on it is not to say that they won't work, but I would say exercise caution. So we don't recommend them to our clients at this point, just because we haven't seen broad adoption throughout the, the asset protection community as a whole. And also because these are new, right? My skepticism comes from the fact that, hey, it sounds great that you don't have to pay any fees and somehow the state will still protect you. But I'm just thinking, hey, if somebody sold me an insurance policy that didn't cost me any money for <laughs> zero premium, you know, I might look at it and say, well, you know, I'd want to kick the tires on that a little more. I'd want to see some case law, right? I'd want to see these Delaware statutory trusts actually be challenged and see them be upheld by courts, uh, especially courts in California, before I'd feel uh, comfortable recommending them to my clients. And so, again, it's not a wholesale repudiation of of the Delaware Statutory Trust, it's really more, hey, at this point, these are these are the potential drawbacks and you know, wait and see. It's kind of where we're at. Is there any California case law on the utilization of the Delaware Statutory Trust? To the best of my knowledge, I haven't come across any. Um, okay. and so and we stay on top of that stuff. Uh, so so let me ask another uh, potentially obvious question from a CPA perspective, I think, and probably from your perspective too. Talk to us about the fees that you could charge to set up a Delaware statutory trust versus a straight, a straight up like LLC structure. So, I mean, an LLC structure, like if you're going to go set it up, it, it's relatively economical, right? What, what does it cost to set up a Delaware statutory trust? Are you, do you know? So I've never actually set one up, but if we did, I would say that it would probably run anywhere between five and 10 grand to set up. So that being said, I'm estimating based on 
no experience. So, so that, that could vary. And obviously if they do gain popularity, the price to do it may fall. But again, you know, I'm just kind of pontificating based on, you know, you, your listeners should know I've never drafted one before. Okay. Okay. So you never drafted one before. Best of your knowledge though, it is more expensive to set up the Delaware statutory trust than an LLC structure. Yeah. I mean, I think if there may, I mean, I would be fairly confident in saying that there probably are providers out there that specialize in Delaware statutory trust that may charge less. But if a client were to come to us and say, hey, we want to set up a Delaware statutory trust, I would say that uh, I'd probably charge them somewhere in that range to do it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the things I was trying to sort of get at here is that, you know, the way that I always look at it is, are you doing what's best for the client or are you doing what's best for you? And if there's no case law to rely on to set these structures up to the best of your knowledge, granted, um, I always kind of just think, well, you're probably not acting in the best interest of the client at that point. You're probably selling them something where you know that you can, and I could be totally just making assumptions here, but to my understanding as well, an LLC structure is much cheaper to set up than a Delaware statutory trust structure. And so then the funny argument or the funny thing to think about is also like, well, yeah, I get to avoid my $800 franchise fees, but what's the break even point? How many years of franchise fee avoidance do I get until and, I actually And will break it even? work? And then will it work? work right? yeah. <laughs> so it might take me three years to recover my initial setup costs. And then I've still got this looming question of, we don't even know if it works. Yeah. And, and my, my take on that is at some point, if we get some clarity and it works, then that's another great tool for our clients to consider you know, as part of their asset protection plan. It's just that to this point, we haven't gotten to any sort of point where we feel comfortable as a firm recommending them for that purpose, right? Uh, that that makes a ton of sense. So, you know, I guess you know, let's just say I'm your your average Joe real estate investor. I live in California, and uh, I come to you. And um, and what type of LLC structure would you you know generally recommend? Uh, yeah. So that's a good question, and the answer is it depends because I'm a lawyer, and the answer is always it depends. But what does it depend on, right? So I think it depends on to a large degree, obviously the client's asset mix. It may also Take into account the client's family situation, right? Um, do they? Does he have estate tax issues, right? Um, does he have asset protection issues? Does he have business succession issues, right? So all of these things may come into play. So, for example, let's just say the client has a duplex and he lives in it, and or let's say he doesn't live in it. He he rents, right? So he rents. He doesn't have other. You know, he's got you know fifty thousand dollars in the bank, and that's all he's got. Right. If that's the case, then I might not recommend anything. I might say, look, <laughs> you should just you don't have a lot of assets to protect from the liability associated with your rental property. You should just let it ride and hold it in your name, perhaps. Right. Or let's say that instead the client's got, you know, five hotels, you know, scattered across, uh, you know, Southern California and each one is worth, you know, 20 million bucks. Well, OK, then that may be very different. Right. Maybe those assets should each be held in their own LLCs. Maybe they should be held in some sort of master entity venued in an asset protection friendly jurisdiction like Nevada, Wyoming, Delaware, South Dakota, right? For example, maybe it should be an LLC, but maybe the master holding entity might not be a Wyoming LLC, but maybe it would be a Nevada domestic asset protection trust, for example, right? 
or maybe those assets should be held in, or a portion of those assets should be held in irrevocable gifting trusts for their kids because they're concerned about, um, again, estate taxes, right? So we're trying to pass more assets on to the kids at a lower value now before, let's say, the state tax exemptions shrink or the tax rates go up, which I think all of that is very pertinent at this point, since we're hanging in limbo, waiting to see what happens with the Senate in January. Um, just so your listeners know, right right now, uh, if you, from a tax perspective, we're kind of waiting to see if, one, what the outcome of the election is going to be, and also uh, whether or not the Senate is going to end up in Democratic hands, right? If we get a Democratic sweep, chances are very, very good that there's going to be significant tax legislation coming into play 2021, probably effective 2022. That's exactly well, what I've been telling clients. Yeah, <laughs> Let's talk about that real quick, because I know that we've got a lot of very antsy clients as well. Who'd you guys vote for, by the way? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh my God. Yeah. And the no, world we, exploded we, we, and we're done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, no, we we try we try to be very straight and narrow with any sort of communication to clients. It's funny. I I, I wrote two newsletters and I pushed those out about a month ago. And I was looking at the Biden tax plan and then Trump's bullet pointed tax plan. And I tried to keep it very unbiased, straight and narrow. And I got so much hate mail, man. <laughs> I got yeah. so both times. Touchy. You know, the Touchy. Biden tax plan. And I got all this hate mail back. And then I was like, okay, well, then I'll send out, send out the Trump tax plan. I'll be fine. I sent out the Trump tax plan to get all this hate mail back. And I was just like, oh my goodness. I'm just, yeah. you guys are just, you're coming to me for tax. I, I don't, I'm not commenting on the politics, on the election. I, no way. But Brian, yeah. what I wanted to ask you is, so you said that the legislation would be probably aggressively pursued in 2021, but it wouldn't really be effective in, for, at least for most in most cases until 2022. That's our understanding as well. So if we're going into the end of 2020, we don't necessarily need to freak out and start liquidating our assets and trying to lock in that long-term capital gain rate. I mean, it could be some insurance against some sort of 2021 enactment, but yeah. this stuff takes some time. I mean, it's not going to uh, it, it, I could totally eat my words here in a year, it, but right. You know. <laughs> I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I got a client that's got a very nice, uh, very successful company. It's currently worth about 30 million bucks and he's got a couple of potential suitors and he, he came to us and was just like, Hey, you know, should we just try to like ram a deal through like by the end of the year to, you know, just in case to avoid uh, the fact that capital gains might be taxed as ordinary income. And our answer to him was, well, yeah, in a magical world, if you could get it done, that's great. But, you know, if you're just going to do this and let the, you know, the taxes, the tax tail wag the dog, you know, I think it's better for you to take your time, make sure it's the right buyer, make sure that this all happens, um, right? Make sure that the terms of the agreement are appropriate for what you're looking for. Uh, rather than just doing this to avoid um, some taxes at the margin, um, because obviously this is the accumulation of your life's work. You know, I wouldn't go crazy just to get it sold by the end of the year, especially if you're going to do it in a way that's going to be potentially counterproductive down the road. The other thing that's interesting from his perspective is he does have estate tax issues and so, or potential estate tax issues. And so one of the things that we were talking about is potentially funding certain irrevocable trusts that would create 
some sort of potential tax benefits. And it's to his advantage to fund them earlier in the year, just because we don't want to cross a tax year where we have to report things. And if the deal falls through, then right, it makes it more complicated to undo a transfer. Um, and so, you know, those are some additional considerations when you're advising a client, or if you're a client deciding to make decisions, right, you probably want to consult with your uh, with your accountant or your or your tax attorney or your estate planning attorney on these things because there are multiple considerations um, when deciding on the timing of kind of executing on the various planning that you're trying to do. Yeah, no, this could be a lot of complicated structures um, and things to take into consideration, for lack yep. of a better term, um, whenever you're doing any type of entity uh, entity planning, which is always why we tell our clients, hey, look, we can give you one uh, sufficient for tax purposes, but you always need to go consult your attorney because there's all these legal issues and potential pitfalls that we cannot uh, advise you on. And yep. it's why it's it's generally going to be a, uh, a there's generally going to be an attorney involved whenever you're doing entity structuring. That's why it's great for the right hand and the left hand to talk from time to time, right? Like it's uh, that's the best. I mean, and same thing for us. I mean, when we encounter we encounter clients all the time, where you know we'll advise them on the legal side, right? And we'll say, hey, right, as far as structuring your business, these entities, right. We need you really need to talk to your accountant because they're the ones who are familiar with the nitty-gritty of your income tax situation. Whether you should be an S Corp, whether you should be a C Corp, right? Those sorts of things are hugely important and, and things that we are not uh, in the best position to make decisions on. So it's great to have good resources like you guys to lean on for that. So couldn't agree more. And it works both ways. So I have two two questions. I think one of them is going to be the more relevant question because I think you know a lot of California investors are going to listen to this podcast. And as I know before you mentioned the Nevada Domestic Asset Protection Trust, I think if I said that right, um, yep. would you be able to just give like a, a brief overview of, of what that is? Yeah, totally. So So this is a pretty cool way to make your assets more difficult for creditors to reach, okay? And so the name of the game being, right, how do we deter creditors from coming after us, right? How do we create barriers between our assets and our liabilities to give us more leverage to reach more favorable settlements in terms of time, effort, and money uh, if somebody were to take our stuff? So a Nevada Domestic Asset Protection Trust is an irrevocable trust, right? And so many of your clients may have what are called revocable trusts, which are kind of your mom and pop family trust, right? The Smith family trust. The Smith family trust is often revocable, which means that the creators of the trust have the ability to change or undo the trust, right? So if they decide, oh, we got divorced, we don't need the trust anymore, we can blow it up, take everything back in our names, and then go on our merry way. So the revocable trust is very friendly, user-friendly, right? In the sense that as your situation changes, you can always update your trust however you wish. Um, the problem or one of the drawbacks of a revocable trust is that um, it doesn't provide any meaningful asset protection, right? So a lot of times people assume, hey, I put all this stuff into my trust, so I don't own it anymore. So if I get in trouble, shouldn't if I get sued personally, shouldn't the trust shield me from that liability? And the answer to that question is, from a logical standpoint, that seems to make a lot of sense. The problem is, is you retain one really, really big string to the assets in that revocable trust, right? If you can blow up your trust and pull everything back into your name, then a judge can compel you to do that. And thereby, then those assets would then be exposed to your creditors, which kind of sucks, right? And so an irrevocable trust, by contrast, is a trust that you don't retain that string to pull those assets back into your name. And so what happens is we can say, so for example, let's say I take a million dollars 
and I put it into an irrevocable trust for the benefit of my son. Um, that million dollars, and let's say I name uh, Brandon as the trustee of that trust, right? And so I transfer a million dollars. It's now out of my name. It's now out of my estate and is no longer subject to me and my liability. And so now I get sued, right? Uh, at some point down the road, a creditor comes down the road and says, hey, you know, Brian, uh, I'm suing you. And I see that you transferred a million dollars a year ago to this irrevocable trust. Okay. Well, I gave it away. It's gone. It's not my stuff anymore. So I can't get it for you. I have no control over those assets. I have no ability to pull those assets back. Creditor then goes to Brandon and says, Brandon, you have a million dollars that Brian gave you. We want it. Well, according to the trust, Brandon has an obligation to manage and utilize those assets for the benefit of my son. And the terms are set up so that not only does Brandon have no obligation to give those assets to my creditor, but my son's creditors, right? If he, my son gets in trouble for whatever reason, those assets are also protected from my son's credit. Okay. And so that's a really cool thing. And that works really well when you're doing it for the benefit of somebody else, right? If I'm taking stuff and giving it to somebody else, an irrevocable trust is a really powerful asset protection tool. The problem is, is many states do not recognize these types of trusts if you're doing it for yourself. So California being one very notable state. And so California says, as a matter of public policy, if you set up, if you create an irrevocable trust for the benefit of yourself and you put assets into it that are yours, right? We will not recognize the asset protection benefits of that trust if you get in trouble. So I create an irrevocable trust here in California. I get into a car accident. Somebody sues me. A judge is going to say, yeah, it's for the benefit of you. Tough cookies. I'm going to allow your creditors in and access those assets. However, not all states think the same way, as I think is very clearly evident as a result of this past week, right? So. Um, uh, some states are very proactive from an asset protection standpoint, right? The, the, the ones that get a lot of airplay and the one rightly so are Delaware, Nevada, uh, again, Alaska, South Dakota, Wyoming, for example, right? Um, Nevada just tends to have very, very strong asset protection laws, right? So both Nevada and Delaware are kind of like at the forefront of that. And so, um, so Nevada basically says, Hey, as a matter of public policy, we like these types of trusts. We think people fundamentally should be able to proactively plan to protect their assets before something really bad happens. So what happens is we set up a trust in Nevada, right? We have a Nevada trustee, right? And, um, and then uh, usually that trust will then have an underlying Nevada LLC, which will then hold all the assets so that the client still has some day-to-day -day management or control over those assets as the manager of that LLC. And so what happens is we put those assets in there, right? So we take a million dollars, we put it into an irrevocable trust. Same situation happens, right? I get sued. Creditor says, hey, you have this irrevocable trust with a million dollars in it in Nevada, right? We want it. Well, again, same situation. I don't have any control. I can't pull those assets back into my name. What happens now is the creditor now has to go to Nevada, right? So a California judge will likely say, well, tough cookies, we're going to allow your creditor in. But in order to enforce that judgment, your creditors now have to go to Nevada to get a Nevada trustee to then, or a Nevada court to compel the Nevada trustee to distribute the assets. And so what happens is in Nevada, right? Nevada says, well, hey, as a matter of public policy, we don't care. We, we think completely different from you in California. And so if you guys have ever seen um, uh, Monday Night Football, the old Monday Night Football in the beginning where they have the two helmets and like they smash into one another over and over again. So that's basically what we're creating is a situation where we have the laws of Nevada clashing with the laws of California to a standstill, such to the point where it creates a ton of uncertainty as to whether or not uh, a creditor can collect on the assets within that trust. 
so much so that it becomes very, very expensive and time consuming to reach any sort of clarity on that issue, such that it drives everybody to settle. And so that is an example of how you would utilize in Nevada domestic asset protection trust to create a high degree of protection uh, for those assets that are created or put placed in that structure. But the important thing to know here is it works best when you do it in advance of something bad happening. Wow. Okay. So that, that definitely <laughs> elevated my trust knowledge. I appreciate that. That was great. And by the way, I, if anybody wants to take up Brian's suggestion and give me a million dollars, we can connect <laughs> offline. I will take uh, that. That would that would be uh, only in a trust capacity. So it would be a managerial capacity, not in Oh, so I got to manage the million dollars. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so close. So close. All right. All right. You well, would be so, entitled so, to reasonable we, compensation, though, for your time. That's the okay. 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 Yeah. 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 And, and we, we all know that I can make that extremely unreasonable, right? <laughs> so, so, so thanks for the trust overview. Now, we work with a lot of real estate investors. Obviously, this is the Real Estate CPA podcast. What are some, maybe like one or two key mistakes that you see people with real property assets, what mistakes are they making from an estate planning perspective? Uh, sure. I mean, I think the most common one is they don't have one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but I, I think that a lot of, uh, and maybe I'll kind of answer this question and kind of make it a little broader than the way that you framed it, which is a lot of times... And I'd say this is more common with LLC setup, but also an assumption that sometimes happens when we're talking about estate planning. But a lot of times people assume that setting up an LLC and or setting up an estate plan is simple, right? So they're kind of of that mindset of, hey, I can go on LegalZoom, I can just grind it out and it is what it is. Um, Neither of those things are simple (laughs) if you want to do it right. LLCs, A lot of times people don't see the value in LLCs or paying an attorney to set it up because they think, hey, what am I really doing? I'm basically just putting my name on a form, my address, and sending it into the Secretary of State. And it is what it is. Now I have an LLC. And that's a very reductive way of looking at it because as your listeners may be gleaning from our discussion, a lot of the benefit is in the design and the execution phase, right? So the design phase is really having those conversations and deciding, hey, what kind of assets do you have, right? Are they, does it warrant you having um, multiple LLCs, right? How many eggs do you want to place in one basket? Is it five um, single family uh, units in West Texas, each worth 50 grand each and kicking off a thousand dollars in cash flow a year? Well, maybe they shouldn't all be in their own LLC. Maybe they should all be in one LLC. Okay, well, if they're all in one LLC, should it be a Texas LLC? Should it be a Wyoming LLC? Well, that will depend on your family situation, right? Should that LLC be taxed as a disregarded entity? Should that LLC be taxed as a partnership? Should it be taxed as a corporation? Are you doing fix and flips? Are you doing buy and hold, right? Because those things are going to change, right? That analysis will change those recommendations, right? Should those LLCs be held in your living trust? Should they be held in a qualified personal residence trust? Should a portion of that be held... Uh, in your children's gifting trust. And then once everything's designed, actually executing on all of those things, right? Is the LLC set up properly? Does it actually have an operating agreement, which a lot of times clients don't have, right? Who are the owners? Who are the managers? Should the LLC be manager managed? Should it be member managed, right? And then when it goes into the, the trust, same thing, right? There's a whole set of discussion points that need to come up, right? A lot of times clients assume, oh, my situation is simple. I'm leaving everything to my three kids. Okay, great. How are we going to leave it to the three kids? Does one of them have special needs? 
Are they minors? Are they uh, mature enough to responsibly manage a couple million dollars coming to them at the age of 25? Is 25 old enough? Should somebody else be managing it? Should somebody else be their guardians? What if we have a blended family? What if, you know, so there's, there's like, a whole host of discussion points that come into all of this, right? Are we going to hold the real estate for generations to come? Or are these assets going to be distributed to them? And then we have three kids co-owning real estate at the age of 30, and none of them get along with one another. Is that really in furtherance of the ongoing success of the family, right? These are all those considerations. Do you have charitable interests, right? So there's like a ton of things that can come up as a result of that. And so some clients will end up in Oh, yeah. Okay. We had this discussion. Our situation is actually kind of simple, and that's great. But at least now they know because a lot of times clients make that assumption. I would say 99% of the clients assume that their situation is quote unquote simple. And I'd say at least 75% of them are not, especially if you have more assets, right? You, you want to make sure that's done right. Yeah. I mean, I would have to agree. I think uh, <laughs> uh, whenever a client comes to us and, uh, hey, I have a quick question or, hey, I have a basic question. Can you can you please help me out? It's never that simple. Yeah. It's never that. It was, and look, and look, I've set up my own LLC. I'm, I'm a victim of this. and I did this years ago um, on just the New York website. Yep. And it's probably not <laughs> it's you know outside of me just paying the biannual fees to keep it like from going into like, you know, negative territory or whatever. Yep. Then it's probably not set up the right way. So you definitely got to speak to an attorney if you want to cross your T's and dot your I's. Yeah. And a lot of it's funding, right? So is the property even in the LLC? Is the LLC in your trust? Is it, or your, is your property in your trust? Is it where it's supposed to be, right? Like those are very supposedly basic things that get overlooked all the time. And so, and the, the point here is you're, you are paying for documents, but what you're really paying for is a relationship with somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. So if you know, I think we, we spoke about a lot today and don't want to confuse everybody who's listening too much. So if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, learn more about what you have going on, or maybe they want to talk to you about potentially set up an LLC structure or whatever type of structure would be most appropriate for them in you know in the state of California, yep. what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah. The best way to contact me is probably by email. My email is Brian, B-R-I-A-N at barthattorneys.com. So I'll spell it out. It's B as in boy, A as in apple, R as in Robert, T as in Thomas, H as in Harry, attorneys, A-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-S.com. If you reach out uh, again with an email, I will go ahead and return an email with some links to my calendar. And you can schedule, like I said, either a brief initial phone call just to talk through kind of my process, answer any initial questions, uh, or if you're gung-ho about setting an appointment, you can. Uh, there will be links for you to set a formal uh, meeting by Zoom video conference or uh, by teleconference, just depending on uh, your preference. Would it be appropriate for me to maybe briefly describe my process? Um, maybe that might be helpful for your listeners as well. Yeah, absolutely. So before we do that, uh, we will drop that into the show notes below or at least the website um, into the show notes below and you can go ahead and contact Brian. I know if we do put your direct email in there, uh, you might get some spam sometimes like the, <laughs> the bots and stuff crawl it. Um, okay. so well, we can talk about that offline if you want that in there, but if it's not in there, guys, just go to the website and uh, you'll be able to find Brian, I'm sure from there and figure out, you know, what to do. Um, cool. but with that said, what is your process? Thank you. Uh, yeah. So typically when I'm meeting with a prospective client for the first time, what we'll do is we'll set an initial meeting. That initial initial meeting is complimentary. So there's no cost other than your time. And what we would do is one, spend some time getting to know one another, right? So I'll typically send a questionnaire for the client to fill out and to send to me prior to the meeting. 
And that uh, what we'll do is we'll spend some basic time just kind of walking through the family situation, who there are as people, finances, assets, so I can kind of pull that picture into focus. Second part of the meeting is usually educational. So clients will come to me with an understanding that they need to do something intuitively, right? Either from an asset protection standpoint or estate planning standpoint. So I'll spend a little bit of time just talking about the basics of either asset protection or estate planning as appropriate, right? What are we doing here? What's a will? What's a trust? What are some of the benefits? What are some of the pitfalls? And then once a client has a general understanding, then what we'll do, the third part of the meeting is then turning the spotlight back on the client, talking specifically about kind of what their goals are, what their vision is, and then how they want to set everything up. And so usually at the end of that, then the client will have an idea about whether or not they want to retain me or not. And I should generally have a sense of where we're going from there. Awesome. Sounds like a pretty solid process. So uh, we're going to drop that into the show notes below. If anybody wants to contact Brian, uh, you, you, you heard him and uh, the, everything will be in the show notes below for you to do that. Um, and with that said, Brian, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. I know I learned a lot and uh, looking forward to putting out there. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.